About 15 years ago, Eric Byrne wrote a book called Games People Play. As Dan Yeary would say, that book scratches you where it itches. He really gets down to where we are. He talks about the psychological manipulations we use to get people to do what we want them to do. About five years after that book made it to the top in the bestseller list, a man whose name escapes me now wrote another book, a kind of spinoff of that, called Games Christians Play. And he deals with the little games we play at church where we kind of keep the real motive undercover and hidden. There are several of these games. One of them is, why don't they do something about, and you can fill in the blank, you know, it's always they. Who, who are they, these nebulous uh, uh, folks, unnamed people? You know, why don't they do something about those young people who talk in church? Why don't they do something about those children that run in the halls? Why don't they do something about old deacons, so-and-so? There's another little game called, Well, When You've Been a Christian As Long As I Have. And the place where that game is played is usually in a, in a middle-aged Sunday school classroom. Here's a guy in there. He's a brand-new Christian. He's just, on, he's just really walking tall. He's just, just been, a, been saved. And he's just so excited he wants to share the news. He's found a new book. He didn't even know it was in the Bible. It was, it's called Habakkuk or something like that. And somebody over in the corner of the room says, Well... Didn't you know about the Chaldean taunt in chapter 3? When you've been a Christian as long as I have, you will know some of these books. But my favorite game that's played at church is called I'm Against These Newfangled Gimmicks. And if you can see two people kind of huddled up in the corner of some hall somewhere and they're kind of talking in hushed tones, you know they're playing this game. And as you go by, you know, it just gets, suddenly gets silent. Not a word is said, but you've heard some kind of hush sounds like, well, we've never done it this way before. Well, I guess I'm kind of old-fashioned, but, you know, when we had Pastor so-and-so several years ago, he would never resort to these gimmicks, games we play at church. But the game most common in the book of James is called playing God and with a pen that's sharper than, a, than a, a surgeon's knife he exposes this prominent but terrible disastrous dangerous game called playing God in the first section I read he, he deals with our tendency to play God in the lives of others as we criticize or condemn them in the second section, he deals with our tendency to play God in our own lives as we boast and presume. We are masters of the game. We are pros at it, I tell you. And so I want you to listen with me this morning as I introduce to you a game that you already play, and so do I, called Playing God. Playing God with Others. Now I want to set, first of all, I want us to look at the objective of the game. 
both the games, playing God with others and playing God with ourselves. I want us to look at the objective of the game, then I want to set the rules of it, and then we're going to evaluate the game. What is the objective of playing God with others in the lives of others? If the objective of monopoly is to get hotels on the most expensive property so you can bankrupt your opponent, what is the objective of playing God with others? Here is the objective. To assume that you're superior to others and begin to talk down, talk them down in various ways. To presume that you're superior to other Christians and begin to cut them down. And the rules of the game are simple. There are just two rules, and this is simple game to play. He said, first of all, you begin to speak against your brother. The word in the Greek means to talk down. And the goal that you have is to reduce the estimate of your friend, of the listener, of the other person about whom you're talking. Jess Moody says this is a device that has been invented by the untalented in order to cause them to feel equal with the multi-talented. I suppose it might be America's number one favorite indoor sport. Why is it that censorious criticism is such a, an universal human trait? Why are we so guilty of playing the game? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, because it kind of ministers to our complacency. It kind of feeds our pride. It makes us feel better to cut somebody else down. Sometimes it's the result of our inability to produce. It's kind of a defense against one's own inferiority. I suppose that the loudest music critic in the world is the one who can neither play nor sing. And the loudest art critic's voice is heard by the one who has never really picked up an artist's brush. And sometimes the bitter criticism of others hides repressed desires. It's called by the psychologist projection. We often find to criticize and condemn in others our own faults and our own weaknesses and our own temptations, but we are masters of the game. And the second rule in playing this game, that is, God in the lives of others, playing, game, playing God with others' lives. The second rule is to begin to judge others. The word in the Greek means to pronounce condemnation of another. Now I'm not suggesting that a person is to be gullible and, uh, and non-discerning, but in order for somebody to condemn another, he has to know all the facts about the other. He has to know all there is to know about that other person. He has to be omniscient. And only God knows all the facts. Do you see what I'm talking about? In other words, if I'm going to condemn someone else, I've got to know all there is to know about them. And God is the only one who knows that. So I'm assuming the role of God. Does anyone dare assume that role? And to do so, James says, 
to condemn others is to, is to speak against or to judge the law of love or to judge the law. What is this law he's talking about? It's the royal law that he has defined in the second chapter, verse 8. It's the law of love. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to be building one another up in love rather than cutting one another down in judgment. God's antidote for censorious criticism is Christian love. And it's what Paul is talking about in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians when he says, I want to show you a more excellent way. And then he takes us by the hand and he leads us into that marvelous love chapter, chapter 13. And he says the way to overcome this kind of critical spirit is to have Christian love, which is always looking for the good in someone else which is always accepting others just as they are. Back in the mid-1970s, the Houston Oilers were mired in the AFC cellar. They had won one game and lost five. And so they fired their head coach and they brought in another coach. Whether it was a Christian or not, I don't know, but his name was Sid Gilman. They were one in five when he took over the Houston Oilers football team. They played um, six games after that, and they were six and six. When he took over, they were one and five. After he took over, they were five and one. And somebody asked Sid Gilman, what is the secret of your success in, in, in just bringing the Houston Oilers out of the doldrums? And Sid Gilman said, when I answer your question, you're going to think it's kind of corny, but this is, this, is our, this is our rule. This is what we do. We don't allow a negative criticism, a negative spirit on our team. We love one another. We build one another up in the game of football. Even when the coaches meet with the players, we don't accentuate their weakness, their failure. We accentuate their positive traits and we try to bring those out of them. We don't tear one another down. We build one another up. I'm here to tell you that there is no room on this team for a negative petty spirit. We need to build one another up in love rather than to tear one another down in criticism. Now what is the evaluation of the game playing God in the lives of others? What kind of a game is it? Is it a good game? The text suggests that no one is qualified to play the game except God. It suggests that there is nothing more contagious and ruinous as a negative petty spirit. And it suggests that there is real tragedy in playing this game and that if a person doesn't know all the facts about another, if he's not omniscient, let him keep quiet. There's a second game that this, this text describes. It's called playing God in our own lives. And it's, and it's expressed in that poem that you and I learned when we were children. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pitch from pole to pole, I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. 
in the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate or charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's what I call theoretical or practical atheism. And it's played by people who would not say they were atheists. As a matter of fact, if you ask this person who plays this game, are you an atheist, he would be insulted. Why he would say in his mind, I believe in God. I worship God. I give. I attend church. But in their everyday lives, they live as God did not exist. And in their decisions, they make their decisions as if they were their own and God makes no difference, playing God in our own lives. Now what are the rules of the game? The rules of this game are a little more complicated. And I think there, I think there are four of them that the text describes. First of all, you choose your time and your schedule as you want it. Now the text describes these businessmen who are making plans to go to another city to work. But it doesn't have to be businessmen. It could be housewives. It could be preachers. It could be young people. It's people who sit around and choose their time and their schedule that pleases them. And so these men said, today or tomorrow. The second rule of the game is to select your location so that it pleases you. We'll go to certain, certain, a certain city and there we'll enter into business and we'll stay a year or two. And so they presumed upon God, they presumed to make a choice that was really not theirs. They decided they'd go to this city and they'd stay there. Didn't really matter to them that God might have other plans. And the third rule of the game is to arrange your activities so they will work out for your pleasure and your profit. I mean, ministry doesn't matter. Whatever feels good, do it. Whatever profits you, do it. As long as there's a dollar in it, do it. As long as it benefits you and makes you feel good, do it. That's the rule of the game. I read recently that last year of the 10 bestsellers of non-fiction material sold from the bookstores and the book counters, three of those deal with how to make number one happy, how to exalt, how to promote yourself. It doesn't matter what God wants, what you want, that's all that counts. And the fourth rule of the game is to predict your profit and boast in it. And so they said, we'll stay there a year or two and we'll make a profit. We'll buy and sell and we'll make a profit. Now I'm not suggesting that that means no one is to plan for success. I saw a cartoon recently. It showed this guy, pitiful looking little guy. He said, I never take my lunch to work with me in case I get fired before noon. That doesn't mean that you don't plan for success. But it means 
but it's the folly it's the folly of making those choices and making those plans without God's will and without God's way involved. And Jesus knew a man who played the game exceedingly well. And so one night he sat down and he said, Look at what I have. I have crops that have filled my barns to overflowing. I'll have to build more barns. Look at what I've, ac what I've accumulated. And I've got so much wealth, I have no place to put it. And the prospects are so great that I'm going to make more. I'll have to tear down my barns and build greater. Boast in your profits and predict your profits and boast in them. That's the way you play the game. Now what about its evaluation? Is it a good game? The text says that it's not a good game to play God for several reasons. One is because you have no knowledge of tomorrow. I'm looking into the faces of some people today whose lives have made a 180-degree turn since last year this time. A year ago, this very Sunday, I was preaching in view of a call in this pulpit. You didn't realize that. Most of you don't care. <laughs> a year ago last Sunday, I preached in this church in view of a call. I'm looking into the faces of some people whose lives have been drastically altered and changed in this year's time. If I had told you, if I had known what was going to happen to you this year and told you a year ago when I stood in this pulpit, you would not have believed me. Things happen so drastically and so quickly and life alters and changes. You and I have no knowledge of tomorrow. Some have lost jobs. Some have had career changes. Some have had tragic, unexpected deaths to come invading their ranks and their fellowship. And life has drastically altered and changed this year. You don't have a knowledge of tomorrow. And that's why some people's lives are just caving in around them today. They planned for everything except for change. And they've included everyone but God. And their little kingdoms come caving in around them. And their best laid plans have gone awry. And their little worlds that they've kind of propped up with all of their dreams have just kind of been kicked out from under them in one fatal swoop. And now life is tumbling in around them and they have no resources, no strength. Adolf Hitler once boasted the Third Reich would last for a thousand years. It lasted less than 20 for nobody has knowledge of tomorrow. He came into my office a few years ago. He was just a shell of a man. As a matter of fact, when he came in and sat down, I knew that I had seen him before but I didn't even recognize him. He was drawn, he was pale, he was emotional. He said, you don't know me, do you? I said, I really don't. I know your face, but I can't put a name to it. He said, you came by to see me about a year ago. And he named, I, I remembered him then. 
He said, you sat in our living room and you talked to us about the Lord and about the church. He said, I had the world by the tail. He said, I was making money. He said, I was involved in an escalating business. My profits were on the rise. My children were fine and healthy. My wife and I were in the social world. We had everything just like we wanted. When you left that night, he said, I want to tell you, I laughed about you. He said, I said to my wife, kind of mocking, I guess he thinks I need the crutch that he has down at the church. He said, I mocked you when you walked out the door. And then he began to cry. He said, my wife walked out on me last week. She said she could no longer stand the neglect and the abuse, mental abuse. He said, preacher, my business is caught up. He said, I've invested over my head. He said, I may lose everything I've got. He said, when you were in there talking to me about God, I thought I could live a thousand years and I'd never need Him. But I just didn't know what was ahead of me when I told you to go and leave us alone. It sure does make a difference when you place the future in the hands of God. And so when they said to Martin Luther, what if tomorrow, if you break from the Roman Catholic hierarchy, what if tomorrow the ecclesiastical machinery begins to grind you up like powder and your friends turn against you. Where will you be then? He said, why, I'll be then where I am now in the hands of the Almighty. It's a dangerous game to play. I'll play God with my life because you have no promise, no knowledge of tomorrow. Secondly, because you have no promise of a long life. Did you notice what the scripture said? It said, what is your life? It's like a vapor that vanishes. I like the J.B. Phillips translation. It says it like this. What is your life? It's like a puff of smoke, visible for a while, then dissolving into thin air. I went to church as a kid in revival services. Always looked forward to the revival service because at least one sermon was going to be on Belshazzar in the banquet hall. You know that hand on the wall? Man, those preachers could make that scary. You know, they talk about that hand writing on the wall. I haven't heard one since I was a kid in revival services. But you know, it says, Thou art weighed in the balances and are found wanting. You know, I, I've, as I've gotten a little older, I've found an even more frightening verse in that story, it's not the verse that says, Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. It's the verse that precedes it, and it says this, The God in whose hand thy breath is. You know what that means? It means God has your life in His hands, and He doles it out a breath at a time. It means that the length of your life is just one breath. He raced speedboats. He said when he got to be, when he broke the 300 mile an hour barrier, he'd quit racing. He broke the barrier and he quit racing, but not like he planned. Donald Campbell was going 310 miles an hour in his jet hydroplane and it just disintegrated. And national sports magazines carried a picture of it. There was Donald Campbell in his jet hydroplane boat going 310 miles an hour and all of his dreams just went up in a puff of smoke. 
I walked out of his hospital room Saturday before the Super Bowl in 1969. He is a star tackle on the Iowa Park Hawk football team. He was all state. He was a junior in high school. He had minor surgery on a shoulder, so, shoulder injury that he acquired in the season and they were just going to repair it so his senior year he could be super All-State. And we were laughing and talking about who's going to win the Super Bowl. The next morning he got up, had his breakfast, and was getting ready to watch the Super Bowl. His roommate said he took one breath and he was gone. It's a dangerous game to play God with your life because you have no promise of tomorrow. You have no promise of a long life. And it's a dangerous game to play God with your life because you don't have any right to ignore the will of God. He made you. He created you in His own image. And He spent an eternity past drawing up the blueprints for your life. And He sent His Son sinless Son of God, flesh and blood Son of God, to die for you, for you, and He suffered at Calvary and rose again in order that God's plan might be accomplished in you. You don't have any right to ignore that. And I wanted to be a football coach so bad I could hardly stand it. And I knew that God was moving in on my life to be a preacher. And I resisted and I rebelled against it. But you know what? I came to this conclusion. No man has a right to ignore God, God's will, and God's way. If you're living your life this morning as you please, saying, I'll do it my way, I'll do it on my terms, I'll do it on my time, I'll make my profit as I please to make it. You don't have a right to do that. You're not God. What is the conclusion of all of this? The conclusion is found in the last verse of that text. It says this, He who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Now watch what that says carefully. It says, first of all, you've got to know what is good. That means you need to deliberately, regardless of the cost, determine what is right. Determine what is good. Regardless of what it's going to cost you, you need to determine what God wants you to do. And then the second step is to do it. If you have a critical spirit and you've been guilty of playing God in the lives of others, judging them, you stop it. For if you know to do good and you don't do it, you're in sin. And if you're living your life as if it were yours to live, if the objective of this game that you've been playing is to, is to assume that you're in control of your life and then live it that way, then you need to stop this morning. You need to decide what God wants you to do and then do it. What does God want you to do? Borel, the great French artist, listen, I'm through, read the 12th chapter of Luke and he drew a painting of a man sitting at a table 
He has a bag of money on the table and he has a ledger full of assets. And he's looking out the window of the house and you can just see what he's thinking as he looks out at waving grain and barns full. You can just see what he's thinking. You know what he's thinking. Man, life for me is great. I've got it made. All my only problem is, what am I going to do with my prosperity? Then he's read again the 12th chapter of Luke and he turned the painting over and he painted again. He painted the picture of a man sitting at the table. He had a large bag of money on the table. He has a window open with grain waving outside and full barns. The only difference is on the table he has a little pile of dust and behind him with his hands on his shoulders is the death angel. And you know what he's thinking this time? He's not thinking, man, life is great for me. All I have to do, my only problem is what am I going to do with my, my prosperity? What he's thinking now is this. I've planned for everything but death. And I've included everybody but God. For some reason, this morning is a time for decision in an unusual way. There's an unusual hush. It seems to me that what we decide here this morning for some of us may be the most important decision we've ever made in our life. And what I'm asking you to do right now is not something difficult. It's not something far-fetched. I'm going to ask you to search your heart and do what is right. I'm going to ask you to search your heart and do what God wants you to do. And after we've had prayer, I'll invite you to come. There may be some of you who come to say, I'm coming this morning to give my heart and life to Jesus Christ. There may be others of you who will come to say, I want to place my life in this church or rededicate myself to God. I've lived as though God didn't matter. I've made decisions and choices as though it made no difference. And I want to come. And I want to give my life to Him. I want to do what He wants me to do. Maybe you've made a decision at Bible school or camp. You'll need to come as others have already done to make that public. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we know that you're here because you've promised you would be. And we know, Father, that we don't have a right to presume with this moment of decision. We have only the right and the freedom to do what you want us to do. And so I pray, God, that all over this auditorium there might be that soul-searching, the finding of the heart, the mind, the will of God. Help us to understand that the decision we make this morning 
could be the difference between success and failure, happiness and misery, love and hate, victory and defeat. And I pray that you'll bring to our fellowship those that you would place here in service. And I pray for those to accept Christ who you've touched and called. I ask now for your will to be done in this place. In Jesus' name.